1: We're gonna make sure we recognize you, advance you, and make sure that you, look, my, my children, my grandchildren, they, you are the future. You are the future. I owe, as I said, for example, I I made the comment that I view myself as a transitional president. Amen. Is that one term? It's transition to your generation. You're the best educated. You're the most open. You're the least prejudiced generation in American history. The future is yours, and I'm counting on you. Well, that was
0: weird. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, October 6th, is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to talk about voting. Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers! And yay for voting. This election, Chicago voters are casting a ballot on much more than the President of the United States. Some of the races we will be voting on include the Cook County State's Attorney, over 60 judges, our Water Reclamation District Commissioners, and changes to our taxes. With all these races, candidates, and issues, casting an informed ballot can seem like a challenge, but Chicago votes a nonpartisan organization, is here to provide you with information on the candidates and issues on the ballot. Their 2020 voter guide is available digitally at chicagovotes.com and chicagoreader.com. Pull it up on your laptop, take it with you into the voting booth on your phone, and feel confident in knowing who and what you are voting for. chicagovotes.com. It is Tuesday, October 6th, and pre-recorded from my apartment, this is The Bendrovsky Show. The Bendrovsky Show is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hey there, producer Dennis here. How's it going, everybody? We're calling this No Ben Tuesday, and here's why. Sadly, Ben's father passed away yesterday, and Ben is not here uh, because he is handling the funeral at the moment. Ben wanted me to let all of you know that we are scheduled to have a brand new live Ben Jarofsky show for you tomorrow, Wednesday, October 7th. Monroe Anderson will be our guest and uh, he's doing fine. He wanted everybody to know that. And if you would like to send your condol- uh, and if you would like to send your condolences to Ben, you can. Uh, you could send us an email, bennyjshow at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at bennyjshow, B E N N Y the letter j show, and you can send us a voicemail if you'd like. 708-658-4788. 708-658-4788 eight so a uh, brand new show tomorrow until then i combed through the extensive ben jarofsky show episode catalog over 1400 episodes have you listened to all of them no go try it tonight See how many you can get through. Uh, if you have, man, you love this show, and that is incredible. Thank you very much. But uh, I went through, and I thought about the summer that was for the Ben Jarofsky show. My lord, it was a hot mess. We were in an attic. Now we're uh, we're separated here. I'm in my apartment. Been a, a crazy summer, but in the midst of the craziness, we've had a lot of good interviews. And the one we're about to play here until Ben gets back tomorrow. One of my favorites this summer. Uh, this guy's name's Jonathan Balou. He's a street reporter, and he was on the ground for the George Floyd protests and the Columbus statue removal right here in Chicago. So, once again, brand new live show tomorrow, Wednesday, October 7th, right here, same time, 1 p.m. We'll go to about 3 p.m., like we always do. And if you would like to send your condolences, Benny J Show at gmail.com at Benny J Show on Facebook, Twitter. And Instagram 708 658 4788. 708 658 4788. Leave us a voicemail if you'd like. benny J, take it away.
1: Bonus time in the Ben Drowski Show as I speak. It's Friday, July 31st, 2020, but of course, it's a podcast. You could be listening anytime. Just give you a sense of what's in the headlines today. Speaker Madigan asks, House Dems, are you with me or against me? Yeah, we've been talking about it all day. Madigan Gate, uh, Matt Await. <laughs> that was our joke for today. We're waiting for Madigan. Waiting to see if any Dems uh, will announce that they are not going to support Madigan anymore. House Speaker Michael Madigan up to his uh, eyebrows in trouble. But we're not going to be talking about uh, Michael Madigan uh, today's show. we talked enough about him today. Instead, we're... we're uh, You know what? I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Uh, It's a bonus show. I'm going to allow my distinguished guest to introduce himself as we do. And then you'll learn what we're going to be talking about. So distinguished guest, take this opportunity to introduce yourself. I'm not sure about distinguished, but uh, I'm Jonathan Ballou. I'm a
2: freelance journalist in Chicago. Um, I used to be a staff reporter at Block Club Chicago, uh, graduated with a journalism degree at DePaul University, downtown The Loop, uh, was a Marine Corps veteran, uh, now was served active duty before that, and I'm currently just uh, out in town doing some on-the-ground reporting.
1: That is uh, putting it mildly. And uh, Jonathan Blue, I'm going to give him a shout out right now, is a badass with a capital B. Uh, he goes out pretty much, I don't know, every night, but whenever there's a, a significant demonstration uh, with his camera, uh, just an old school type reporter on the scene, filming what's going on, taking, nuts, uh, taking notes on what's going on, filing stories that he sells as a freelancer to various outlets, uh, and then dropping onto his Twitter feed. Good stuff. It's like really old school, Jonathan. And I'm looking at you. You're a young man. Uh, you just... You, you know, why don't you just give a little background on like what led you from the Marines to doing this? It just uh, does not seem to be the kind of career move that I would expect from the Marines. Uh, but, you know, I could be falsely stereotyping Marines. So talk about how you went from being a kid in high school to a Marine to uh, a late night, midnight rambler reporter uh, chronicling what's going down in the streets of Chicago.
2: You know, I don't think you're being unfair stereotyping. I don't really know many other marine journalists. I ran into some, but, uh, and it definitely wasn't the uh, financial move that was the uh, most prudent. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I got on my, my deployment in 2016. I was on a boat, um, and I was realizing that, you know, I don't think I'm going to do – I had done just about five years active duty, and I was thinking, I'm not going to do this anymore, so what's next? And um, honestly, while I was on the ship, I uh, started reading a lot. And I I was a pretty avid reader as a kid and even through high school, but kind of got away from me in my, like, earlier 20s. And I just started devouring books and then I started writing again and I thought, you know, I kind of like doing this and I wanted to do something that, you know, I felt like was helping people or was, you know, a public service. And so when I got out, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the GI Bill, but it's pretty much like a certificate to go to school for free while they pay for your housing. So I figured I'd come back to Chicago and I would try my hand at journalism and I just kind of fell in love with it and recently I've been honestly trying to get out of journalism but it kind of just keeps pulling me back in and um, back when I went I went out in May during those uh, those big protest weekend over Memorial Day weekend and I went out without any plans of selling any stories or getting any coverage but I just thought that it seemed like it was going to be something where you know we would want a trained documenter to be there on the front lines and I felt like if things got hairy, which obviously they did, that I would be someone who was equipped to be there on the front lines covering it. And since then, I guess the freelance work has just kept coming, and I feel like the work's having impact, so I
1: just keep on going for now. All right, we're going to get in. Let's take a deep dive on both uh, the, um, the events of Memorial Day weekend uh, and also the events of the Columbus statue—that's where I uh, really came face to face with your journalism. Love the stuff you were uh, sending out about uh, Statue Gate. And uh, but just before we do, I started leading you through Memorial Day. You say uh, you love journalism. What is it about journalism that you love?
2: You know, I think when it comes down to it, I think there's something important about documenting what's going on around us, but doing it in a way that tries to get to the truth of the matter. And I think that there's a lot of power in that. And I think, I think it it provides a service that it's hard to even discern some, quality journalism from non-quality journalism these days with, you know, all the social media out there and all of the, we're constantly bombarded with different media, but I think good journalism still shines through, and I think that's why publications are still willing to pay for it because, you know, someone who's trained to document something in the correct way can really have an impact at, like, showing what happened. Because, for instance, take the protests. I mean, if you get get someone who's, very one way or very the other way you're going to get different narratives that are very much one one direction but if you get a a truly trained documenter who's just out there trying to observe what's going on i think you can get a picture of what's happening for some of these events and it helps it helps it helps balance out the narratives i
1: feel uh all right and uh we'll get into that that issue of a point of view of the journalist because your Columbus statue coverage, particularly uh, the essay you wrote in Esquire, you're very upfront about your point of view when yeah. the statue came down. Yeah, uh, I think um, that's something,
2: too. I, I would say there's a bit of an old guard versus new guard journalists uh, community even now where, you know, when I first got into journalism, I was kind of uh, buying into the pure objectivity myth, where or at least how I considered a myth where, you know, a journalist has to be 100% unbiased all the time and can never show any opinions ever, ever, you know, and it's kind of that, that, you know, that, that old adage, whereas I, I've kind of come to believe, and I think a lot of journalists do as well, that we're human beings, Ben, you know, we have opinions, we have, we have, we have bias, and there's no way to avoid that. So for me personally, I seek to be fair, and I seek to be accurate. And I think. Uh, I I think the two can work together. And I've covered a lot of tough stories where obviously I feel one way or the other, but I I do my very due diligence to talk to both people and both sides or if there's multiple sides or perspectives. and And when somebody comes at me about some of my reporting, I often say, well, can you point to somewhere in the story where you think I was being unfair or inaccurate? And most of the time, the answer is no. And I think that that's what journalists should be striving
1: for is fairness and accuracy. I, uh, even though that sounds like something that uh, Fox stole, I agree with everything you said 100%. What was the Fox line? They had their fairness or whatever. Or whatever yeah, just, yeah,
2: yeah. I didn't mean to be a Fox. Yeah, minute, uh, but, yeah, but it was, they,
1: they did the exact opposite. They like projected good vibrations and then put out bad vibrations. But I'm with you 100%. The notion of uh, 100% of activity is a myth. I can't believe they even. Teach, well, I've never been to journalism school, Jonathan, so I don't know what they teach in journalism school. But I, 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 if they're putting, still putting that in a youngster's heads, it's such a myth.
2: Well, if because- you look at some of the journalists, like, I mean, people are still or revering Ida B. Wells these days. Like, Ida B. Wells was pretty anti-lynching. I mean, anti-lynching as they come, you know, and it doesn't mean her journalism didn't have massive impact. Or You know, I think even if you look at the study of media, I mean, this, this, this fairness doctrine and how that plays into a lot of things – this this whole like perfectly balanced, purely uh, uh, purely unob unobject- purely uh, unobjective is kind of a, a more recent phenomenon in media
1: within the last hundred years. Could you imagine if Ida ID B Wells had gone for the other I, side? Well, we've uh, now seen the horrible sides of lynching. Let's go talk to the lynchers and see the good points of lynching. I mean, yeah. what a joke, you know, you're absolutely correct. Uh, and uh, I agree with you one hundred percent on that. All right, let's now let's give people a sense of what Jonathan's life is like. Let's go back uh, in time to, we'll we'll get to the Columbus statue one. I love that, folks. Don't worry, I'm going to get to Columbus statue. I've been promising our listeners that we would talk about Columbus statue gate. But let's talk about uh, the Memorial Day unrest uh, and the role uh, that you played uh, in chronicling it. Why don't we start, I don't know what day is best for you to start, uh, Saturday or Sunday, but whatever it is, talk about how how you went about uh, your business that day.
2: I'd actually say Friday would be the better day, and um, quite, quite honestly, I would think I was one of the few journalists out there that day. I, I know I ran into a Tribune photographer, I think John Kim, if I remember correctly, who's fantastic, by the way. Um, I ran into him there Friday, but there was kind of like a smaller action that started to develop into something bigger that day, and I kind of raced down there. I actually ended up getting in a car accident that day, um, so I was kind of flustered, and I was just a bit late to it, so then I don't know. If anyone who anyone who covers protests knows that this is the worst place to be in, but if you start chasing the protests once they've already started moving, it can be a nightmare. So I'm down there in the loop and I'm trying to find this protest. And luckily for me I did. And it just felt different. You know, I covered many protests in the past, at least like ones at Federal Plaza, which I'm sure you've seen many of, and they usually follow that. You know the same kind of pattern where it's you know meet at Federal Plaza, march in the approved route, and then you finish up. And it really doesn't cause much of an issue for anybody, minus like a few traffic issues. But this protest was immediately seeking to disrupt. You know they were they were trying to shut down Michigan Avenue. They were trying to shut down State Street. There wasn't they weren't working together with the, the police or the, the the local city city ordi or city government you know they were they were trying to cause chaos and in that as protests are, have often done for decades and I could just feel I could feel a different kind of tension in the air and I, I kind of felt like this was going to be something that was going to materialize and I remember the, the big moment was at the, of the evening was they got to the the prison downtown, the Metropolitan Correction Center, I believe it's called. You know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? Yep. And, and as they got down there, um, th- this had been after we had some bike blockades from police and we had protesters racing to beat the bike blo- bike blockades. And, you know, I had I'd seen a guy burning an American flag in front of the police officer. So, like, things were escalating. And. As we got down to the prison, there was, you know, prisoners we, we couldn't see inside. But the people who were incarcerated, you know, the lights were flickering on and off and you could hear tapping on the glass. And it was just kind of this like watershed moment, or at least for the protesters and for me that, you know they're at this symbol of like mass incarceration in a way. And there's these protesters chanting, you know, we love you. We love you up to these, you know, people who are incarcerated. And you've got this wall of cops that's stopping them because at one point they are banging on the glass of the detention center. And it just, it felt like I was like, this isn't, it, they didn't quite have the numbers that, that, to really overwhelm any of the police officers that day, but you could feel the energy was there. And I was thinking to myself like Saturday, like this, this is going to be big because mm-hmm. just my tweets alone started blowing up and they started like going viral. And, you know, I, I don't usually go viral, so I, I don't have the largest following. And so I was seeing hundreds of thousands of people like, liking or retweeting some of these images that I was putting out there. And lots of people were even commenting like, oh, I'm going to be there Saturday or we'll be there Saturday. And then I started getting tips from, you know, people who worked within different aldermen's offices and uh, all sorts of different, you know, off the record kind of tipsters telling me they had heard of all sorts of caravans that were planning to come down to federal or come down to the loop on Saturday. And before you know it, I was thinking, you know, this is going to be a protest in the hundreds So I guess we'll move forward to Saturday. And I got down there. I don't remember the time, but I was there about 15 minutes, 30 minutes before the action, the protest was supposed to start. And there were already like a thousand people there. And I was like, holy crap, this is going to be large. And then within an hour, you couldn't even, there was cars just lining every street from I think Dearborn all the way down and all the way around the block. Cars just dropping off dozens of people at a time, people honking like crazy. I mean, just so many people, you couldn't even contain them all within the area. And when the march started that Saturday, I was like, there's there's no, this doesn't make sense because they were marching out, but there was really no, there was no, you couldn't even tell the front from the back of the line because there was just such a mass amount of people. And all of a sudden, you know, then the police started trying to control the routes of where everyone was going. And some people went one way, another went another. And there was some pretty, you know, actionable things between cops and protesters. And that's when it kind of just dissolved, you know, and there was just pockets of resistance and protest throughout the loop for the rest of
1: the day. And there was just I
2: mean, it, it it was something
1: to see, you know. Now, when you talk about police trying to control the march route, what exactly are they doing to try to control that?
2: Well, so they had a, someone who was like—I believe they called them a police liaison—and they were in like a—they a, weren't in like a police gear or like they weren't in like riot gear or anything like that. They had like a neon vest. I can't remember what it said on the back of it, but I, I, they had been coordinated with some of the organizers of the march. And so they, they marched the street. So instead of going north, they had them to the left, and they were like going around the plaza in like a circle. But by the time the head of... It's like a head of a snake almost. By the time the head of the snake got around to the, the bend and made a full circle around Federal Plaza, they had already met up with like a giant mass of protesters. So now you don't even know where the front of the line is versus the back of the line. And it was, that's when it kind of dissolved into just kind of chaos, honestly.
1: And when you see something like, uh, uh somebody burning an American flag in front of a police officer, what's your reaction? You're again, you're a Marine vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, what are you thinking when you see that?
2: You know, I don't think that I would think the same as many Marines. And I, I'm sure I've had, I have a lot of veteran friends who I know vehemently disagree with me on this, but, I mean, to me, freedom is is freedom, and part of, part of being free is the freedom to burn us, our, our most quote-unquote sacred emblem, you know? And so it, when we tell people they can't burn our flag anymore, like, are we really the country of freedom? So I, I guess to me, I, I think I wrote about this in my Chicago Mag piece, too. I, I had never seen a flag burning in person, so it was jarring for me. I was like, holy crap, the American flag is on fire, and it's literally an arm's reach away from this line of CPD officers but i kind of thought like damn that's pretty cool like that's pretty awesome that we live in this country where a black man can burn a flag in front of a police officer pre- presumably without con- con- or consequence maybe not today with all of the overreach we're seeing throughout the country with federal troops maybe that wouldn't be the case but presumably i mean the what is the law is the what texas versus johnson is that the supreme court case I, I can't remember but there's the supreme court case that says you can burn the flag because it's your right as an american to express your displeasure with your government. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, although uh, Donald Trump, for the record, uh, has said that he favors a law uh, in uh, that would ban uh, burning the flag and make it punishable offense. I just wanted to point this out. This is this is an example of we talked about no one's completely objective. Now, I'm going to display my lack of objectivity by pointing out uh, there's a great inconsistency here. Donald John Trump says that people should have the constitutional uh, right of free expression to wave the Confederate flag. But at the same time, he. He wants a, a ban on burning the American flag. Interesting where free expression begins and free expression ends. I, mean, I don't know. The difference
2: between, you know, patriotism and blind nationalism. And I think the line has gotten skewed for a lot of Americans where they just don't seem to understand that, you know, blindly following uh, laws or law and order of like re- you're required to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or you're required to say the Pledge of Allegiance. That's not freedom in my opinion that's a, that's a totalitarian dictatorship that tells you you're required to stand for the pledge or you're required to to, to not take a knee for an anthem like you, you cannot you cannot you know put limits on people's free expression
1: so i'm presuming from what you said that you were supporting colin kaepernick when he took the knee
2: you know actually when was that back when was it when I, when did officially first take the knee that was probably 2006
1: 17, but that sounds all right. 2016, I want to say, but I could be rough, but I think, I think 2016,
2: I think I had some evolution of my, my own. Um, at first I think I was, I was kind of like against it. And then I think I talked to, to some of my black Marines and friends who said, you know, it kind of explained to me like what he was doing and why he was doing it. And I said, you know, it's his damn right to do whatever he wants during the anthem. And, I mean, if you ask me today, if I'm at a sporting event and then the anthem comes on, I'll happily take a knee because I understand now, like, what is being protested and how Colin Kaepernick went about it. And so, for me, yeah, I, I, I don't have any problem with it. In
1: fact, it's an act of patriotism. Uh, and I just want to take this moment to, to uh, tell our listeners, if you haven't already, uh, check out the interview I did with Tony O, a Marine veteran. Who passionately, Jonathan, I know we're on a tangent here, we're gonna get back to the, yeah, I like the passionately advocate. He won't stand. He's a dear friend of mine. We go to games. He won't stand for the national anthem. He's the other, you know, and he has a whole worldview about it. And I think he's eight years in the Marines. Uh he's older than you, he's a generation above you, he's a nineties guy. But he 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 has a whole thing about it, so I urge everybody want to check. This guy takes a deep dive. Tonio, I believe it was around the Fourth of July. We did a Fourth of July interview on it. Uh, Kate gets in this a uh, little more. All right, uh, b- uh, back to uh, the situation. So you're chronically. And I get a sense of what 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 are you looking like? Do you have like a idea around your neck or sure. uh, wearing a helmet? Um, we we'll talk about that.
2: So I, when I go out to protests now, I try to be as nondescript as possible. I usually wear a gray T-shirt, um, maybe some gray or off green pants. You know, I have my boots on. Um, I usually have my backpack, but then I just wear a bright yellow press, like it says press, and it has my CPD press pass in it as well. And I just wear that, and I want to be identified as press as most as, as easily as possible. So when I walk up and down police lines, because when, let's say you've got a line of protesters and a line of of officers, and you know they're they're having a standoff. I'll walk in between those two, and I'll walk up and down that line with my phone camera, and I, I feel that holds everyone accountable. You know, there, there's no one side narrative of what actually happened at that front line. You know, like I'm the one who's who's covering it, and so my camera is going to like going to cover what's going on. So I'll hold my press pass up as high, like next to my face, almost with my phone in the other hand. So I mean, it's pretty damn clear if anybody
1: and uh, have you ever gotten grief from one side or the other like police giving you a hard time or protesters giving you a hard time I mean quite frankly, I have
2: almost never gotten any issue from the protesters and, um, during my coverage. And I expected to, um, to be honest with the, you know, some of the feelings that people have about the media today. And I'm sure, you know, many of the protesters don't like the mainstream media, but I don't really think I, maybe it's cause I don't come off like that. maybe it's, I, I'm not sure, but if anything, I was getting protesters, like ushering me to the front they were making, getting out of my way and like offering me spots to get up there quicker so they could, they, they want things documented, Ben. I think like at least from my from my experience personally the protesters over these last few months they want especially independent media they want press up at the front like documenting what's going on because a lot of them don't have time to be filming things you know they're they're in the middle of protesting um, in terms of police I, I, you know, I would love to say that all the police officers that I've dealt with have been completely respectful of me as press and many, many, many of them have. Um, but also there was plenty who were not. And, you know, plenty who I mean, I pepper sprayed on Saturday, you know, by a by an officer while I was holding up my press pass clear as day. And he sprayed me right in the face. So, I mean, I can't say that I was constantly respected as press
1: by law enforcement. Did you uh, make it on Saturday from the downtown? Were you in the downtown when they uh, called the uh where they raised the bridges uh, and said that there uh, everybody had to be off the streets. were you downtown when that went down? Oh yeah man I was downtown um, up until I
2: think around midnight if I remember off the top of my head um, I was there on Lake Street especially if you remember like where the lake Lake L stop is down there. Um, and I was walking up and down there as as things were being you know looted and as things were burning and you know they had dr- people had dragged you know uh, newspaper boxes and dumpsters into the street and M80s were going off inside the dumpsters and things were on fire and a Seven Eleven was bashed out and all the sprinklers were going out. And I remember a bunch, someone had taken scratch-offs and they were just flying in the air because they had thrown like hundreds of them in the air. As you walked up and down the block there, it's almost all corporate places and nearly every single place was just completely just ransacked, you know. Um, even the banks, you know, they have double glass security stuff so they couldn't get into the banks, but they had smashed out the front windows at least. And,
1: uh, uh, were the police trying to arrest, uh, looters and people smashing windows or were they just, had they just backed off and were allowing it to go on?
2: You know, I would say closer to the, to the second thing you said, they're backing off, but like, obviously the police were still making arrests and you know, hundreds of arrests were made, but at least that time that I was walking on Lake street, it was mostly like, if I think I wrote about, it, it felt like a scene out of the purge, you know, like I don't know if you know that movie, but, uh, yeah yeah, the whole, for those who don't know that movie, it's, you know, the premise is that, you know, for one night, there are no laws in the country and it allows the citizens to purge, you know? Um, but that's what it felt like, to be honest. It felt like there was almost everything, anything goes. Um, but yeah, at that point the bridges had been raised and I, I think uh, they were just, I think almost had lost control at that point, you know? and uh, we, And we've talked about people or at least we've reported on people have, it wasn't necessarily just protesters at that point. There was even reports of people coming from nearby cities or out of state even to, to take advantage of that opportunity to, to loot. Uh, and were you personally afraid? Um, you know, I, I think this probably comes down to the the Marine Corps training and I, I wasn't afraid, um, at all, honestly, but that's just because I was more thinking about doing my job, you know? And, uh, more focusing on what's going on around you. And even in the Marine Corps, they teach you about – when things get very hectic or stressful, there's like a whole color code system called Cooper's colors code. And it like tells you not to get into the black, which is when you like shut down and you know, you're so afraid that like you almost are in shock and you can't, you know, you can't function. They teach you how to operate within like a certain level of where stress is a good thing. You know, it heightens your, it heightens your senses. It heightens your ability to react and to think, but like too much, if you let that get to you too much, then I think you can dissolve. But you know, I, I did. I did feel like I was equipped to handle what was going on. But when I look back on it, I think about some of the things that I saw on that Saturday, especially, mm-hmm. especially um, near the Walgreens um, right on Michigan by Old Power Tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, we were in danger a lot of times. I mean, there were bricks being thrown and I didn't have a helmet on. You know, I could have taken a brick to the head pretty easily. Um, You know, at one point I had a rubber bullet gun aimed right at me from maybe 15 meters away. And I was like, that's the one time of the day I remember being actually pretty scared because I was like, if this thing gets shot and I take this to the face, like I I could die or at the very least like lose an eye or, you know, I I know for a fact those are called non-lethal, but they should be, they should be called less lethal because
1: I mean, they, they can, they can kill somebody and uh so how did you get a, get out without being arrested it was a curfew uh you're there until what'd you say midnight did you say around yeah. midnight on so then, uh, give, uh credit to the police officers like a lot of times throughout
2: friday saturday sunday when it was like dispersing the crowds and telling people to go home because I forgot there was the curfew going on, of course. So after the curfew was going, I think for the most part, I, my press pass was respected. So like I'd walk around and be like, you got to get out of here. And I'd be holding up my press pass and be like, hey, I'm press,
1: you know. And for the most part, I was able to kind of wander wherever I wanted to. All right. So let's get to Sunday. Uh, talk about what you did on Sunday. Did you go back downtown again or did you go to some neighborhoods?
2: You know, I started to go downtown. I wanted to see if I could get through because you remember they blocked it off basically and you couldn't get down there um, unless you were like an essential worker or you had an address there or you could, you know, whatever. So I kind of wanted to test that out. And so I brought my press pass and I drove my car and I think I entered through LaSalle if I remember correctly, um, you know, from up from like, you know, uh, old town area. And so. They had city, like, garbage trucks or dump trucks. I can't remember which they were blocking off the places. But I was able to show my press pass, and they let me through. But I got downtown, and obviously it was kind of dead. And it was incredible how fast they had cleaned it up. Like, it almost looked like it it almost never happened down there. I mean, everything was boarded at that point, and most of the streets were swept. At that point, there was some state police that had been deployed to different corners. I went down to where the Picasso statue is, um, sculpture is. And there was like one action going on, but nothing crazy. And I started getting a tons of reports of like the same kind of looting and rioting happening on the south side. So I decided to check that out. And I talked with my editors at Block Club Chicago. And I talked to some of my editors at the Daily Beast. And they were interested in the coverage. And it seemed like a place to go. So I basically took Halstead. And I got on Halstead and just took it all the way, like from, you know, where you can get on Halstead from, I think, if you get on Roosevelt, I think you can connect you to Halstead. Yep. Mm-hmm. I took that south and I went just, I drove up and down basically all the way to the hundreds and back up. And I did that throughout the day. And I mean, it was just, the south side was just a different world at that point. I mean, people, you could feel like a palpable fear even of the people who were just driving their cars that day you know, people weren't respecting stop signs or stop lights as much they were just trying to get the hell home you know because like I, they were just there was every time you'd come to one block you'd see a, a liquor store being completely looted or you'd see a grocery store being looted I remember at one point I was stuck I can't remember which street I was on but I was stuck in a light and there was like there was total gridlock in this intersection because all these cars had tried to go when there wasn't their turn at the light. And right next to me, the store is being completely looted and people are getting out of their cars to come and like join in on the looting. Some are doing that. An ambulance comes flying through. That's I'm not kidding you being chased by a a pickup truck. Like I don't know why. I mean, I obviously was (laughs) not able to report it, and so I'm sitting there and I start hearing, you know, I start hearing people screaming 12, 12, you know, or, or 5-0, police. And I'm, like, looking around for the police. I'm trying to figure out where the hell they are. And I'm videoing this. And then it hits me. Like, they think I'm the police officer because I'm, like, I'm a dude with a camera filming stuff, you know, and I'm, you know, they, they thought I was the police officer. So then I start holding out my press pass. And I'm like, no, 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 press, press. And everyone was like, oh, okay. And went back to what they were doing. But, like, the, 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 the tension that was in the air was freaking palpable
1: so wait, you had gotten out of your car and you were walking
2: at this stage would I people I was really- in my car and so then I was kind of a sitting duck to be honest with you and I and before I knew it like the, the I mean I, I don't know I, I want to say I was probably just past probably between 35th and 53rd I'm not exactly sure which area but there was a like a grocery store being being looted and I'm stuck at that light and I just I, I was filming everything and so I think people were getting really suspicious about why I was filming and I think I probably I have a military bearing, anyways. I probably came off like an undercover detective or
1: something. Hmm. Well, uh, you should know that uh, we've had a lot of discussion. About what went down on those uh, over that weekend, and uh, as you know, Alderman Raymond Lopez has been on the show several times. He's very critical. Yeah, I, listened I
2: listened to him come on last week about
1: talking about it. With you. Yeah, and uh, right last Friday, and uh, he's been very critical of uh, well the mayor. He blames the mayor. Uh, he does not blame the police. He blames the mayor. So, uh, your assessment, not only as a journalist but as a you know a veteran of the Marines, uh, how do you think the city handled? Uh, what went down uh, over the w- Memorial Day weekend. You know,
2: I don't want to speak to Sunday as much because I, 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 I'm i not a part of those internal meetings like Alderman Lopez was, and so I, I don't want to spitball there. But in terms of Saturday, I mean, I've read, and I, I don't have them on me. I wish I would have brought them for the show, but I've read some studies, too, that and they, they kind of align with my personal feelings on this, that, you know, you show up to a protest as a law enforcement agency with riot gear and you're going to incite a riot you know and I feel I feel like I I covered the the big time the big protest on Monday in Uptown and there wasn't the same level of policing there there wasn't the same riot gear police there wasn't the same state police showing up and the, the whole action was went off without a hitch and I feel I feel when I showed up on Saturday it felt like it felt like a militarized police force had descended upon Chicago already like they were ready to like they're ready for whatever happened to happen. And I guess I just feel, I feel, well, I personally feel that our country's over-policed anyways. Uh, so I feel it's a kind of a byproduct of the symptom of over-policing.
1: Wow. That's a whole other concept. Uh, we talk a lot about this show. Are we over police? Are there too too many police in the country? And it's interesting you say that, but I, I'm, I'm not going to uh, – I'm just going to raise this. The votes for the local school councils on whether they should keep the police in the school, uh, pre- pretty much uh, most, most of the schools are voting to keep their police in the school. So it's an interesting dynamic uh, that's going on in this country right now, Jonathan, where our country is finally coming face-to-face with the notion of like, what role should police play and how should they play it and what is an appropriate use of force and where should the police, uh, be involved, or where shouldn't they be involved? And every time it seems like the defund, the police movement is going, getting strong, I get this notion that people, I'm speaking to Chicago now, push back. No, no, don't go too far. So it's like a balancing act. I don't know if the city has figured it out yet. Well, You know what's interesting? You know, they talk
2: about, you know, does police make us safer? What makes a safe community? I mean, if you go out and look at, like, Naperville, for instance, right? Uh, I did some rough math on it the other day, and Naperville's got about 250 sworn officers, right? So, and their population is about 150,000. And Chicago has about two two and two and a half million people, give or take, right? So, mm-hmm. if you take those numbers and you multiply it, Chicago should have about 4,000 sworn officers. But Chicago has 12,000. Police officers. So, by that notion, Chicago is about three times as policed as Naperville. And when you look at the spending rates, I mean, I think I think if I did the math, too, Naperville spends per capita about half or even less than what Chicago spends on their police. And so, does that? I mean, is that because Chicagoans are more dangerous people than Napervilleans? I mean, I just I don't buy that, you know. And so, I think there's been a lot of essays written about what would it look like with less police. I think it would look like a lot like some of these communities that have a smaller police force. Mm-hmm.
1: Valid point. All right, let's uh uh move on to uh I'll avoid a discuss. Were you by the way anywhere near Bobby Rush's office? I never asked you this. For Nothing Popcorn Gate? Panther. No, but I did I did watch the Popcorn Gate with great
2: uh interest the next day. Okay. Uh do you have any thoughts you want to go on that before I move on to uh Columbus? Um. No, nothing that hasn't been said by everybody. Okay. I, I don't think I
1: have anything super relevant to add to the discussion. All right. Well, I'll. Uh, before we move on, I, I remain. I'll keep saying what I say. And this. This is a journalist in me. I've been a journalist like for five thousand years. I'm waiting for the city to finally release whatever documents it's going to release on what went down. Uh, at Bobby Rush's office. The chain of command, were the police ordered there? Did Bobby Rush's office ask them to go there? These are just all basic questions. As a journalist, if you want to put the story they together need to be answered. You're you're not wrong. Yeah. And uh, I got a feeling Jonathan, that somehow or other these questions will never be answered. Um, And it'll just be one of these myths about the police showing up at Bobby Rush's office. All right, let's move on to uh, the Columbus statue situation. Um, In some ways, not nearly as dangerous, I guess, as what you experienced on that Sunday uh, and even on Saturday during Memorial Day. but. It was really – it was was very uh, symbolic, I guess, of larger struggles in the Um, city. Talk about it.
2: So I had been – that had been my third or fourth time camping out that statue with tips that it was going to come down. And I was starting to get kind of cynical about it because I had seen the damn statue so many times. And I'm like, this thing is freaking huge. And the week before that, you know, I'd seen them throw the ropes on it and, like, try to – I didn't see that personally, but I'd seen the video of them trying to throw the ropes on it and pull it down. And I'm like, it just doesn't seem like, you know, the protesters are ever going to be able to isolate that statue enough from police to be able to take the time to throw full-size chains around it or, you know, mount it to some kind of vehicle and pull it down. It just seemed like it wasn't going to happen. But then that night, I was out in, um, near Mayor Lightfoot's house where protesters were protesting by there, and all of our, the reporters, at least the freelancers I was out there with, started getting texts or tips that, like, hey, the city is, I believe Greg Pratt wrote the story originally that Mayor Lightfoot, from the Tribune, Greg Pratt, wrote the story that Mayor Lightfoot was considering taking the statue down. And then we got the tip later that it was coming down that night. So I literally, I got back into my car right away and just drove straight over there. And we were playing the waiting game and a lot of the broadcast media was there. And it, it was getting closer and closer to 11 when it was supposed to come down. And we hadn't seen a single city vehicle. And I was like, it's another goose chase, you know, this thing's not coming down. Like I'm I'm sitting here doing nothing. And then before you know it, um, we started seeing, you know, some city trucks pull up and then we knew the statue was coming down, but those three hours or four hours before that, it was just a really weird night then. Um, (laughs) Weird night. And it felt like almost like appropriate that it was a weird night. You know, um, I don't know if I, I mentioned this in the story. I think I did. Um, just hundreds and hundreds of motorcycles coming by every so often that we're just doing stunts and wheelies. And at one point we're doing burnouts just feet from us, you know, like I have no idea who they were, who they're represented by. I had gotten a tip earlier in the week, actually, from a friend out in Texas who was just a Marine Corps buddy who was saying, Hey, I'm hearing about, you know, hundreds of motorcycle stunt riders that are heading to Chicago. And I I never followed it up, but uh, I had to shoot him a text and say, Hey, I think you might've been right about that.
1: Yeah no there's was a surreal aspect and by th- this this is where I was following you uh in real time there was a surreal aspect almost like it was like a a drug infused scene and not even reefer but like acid drugs you know what i mean just like really trippy stuff uh yeah, the like the motorcycles, like where are they coming from and who are they? And oh, the person in the vagina costume. You know? the, oh, yeah, let's discuss the person in the vagina costume Go ahead. Explain the person in the vagina costume. Well honestly, Ben,
2: I was so locked in that I had talked to this person and like seen him talking to you know the FOP president, John how you say Kat Zara. Is that yeah? Yeah. He's speaking with him and we we're going back and forth and I didn't even realize what he was wearing, to be honest with you, or what they were wearing. I believe, um, I believe they are non-binary, so the pronouns will be they. But um, I didn't even know what they were wearing until somebody said, have you seen the person in the vagina costume? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And they're like, right there. And I look, I'm like, oh, my God, they're wearing a costume of a vagina. And I just I, it was like so clear once I had seen it, and then uh, then I was, it was it made it feel like an acid trip. You're totally right that like I'm watching the FOP president argue with a man or a, a person in a vagina, <laughs> you know. And, and the person in the vagina costume is bringing up very good, valid points. And I've dug into a little bit more of their work, and they do a lot of work surrounding um, the homeless and a lot of documenting of stuff. And I know that they are a lot of different protests, and they I would say they're like very much an activist first but documenting and even a journalist second and they i've seen them at a couple of events even since then uh
1: so were you listening in on the great debate between uh i don't i would give, give the person's name instead of just saying the person in the vagina suit but uh the person in the vagina suit and uh john canizara did you get to uh, listen in to much of their debate
2: um, you know, I did, and I, I think the big thing was I kept hearing John John Catanzaro say, you know, what did Columbus – I think, he, I think the, uh, he was comparing Hitler to Columbus, and John Catanzaro was saying, how is Columbus anywhere near what Hitler had done? And, you know, as someone who's an indigenous Native American, like, I was thinking to myself, you know, the person genocided an entire group of people. So, I mean, the the, the comparisons to Hitler aren't that far-fetched, in my personal opinion.
1: <laughs> And uh, uh, <laughs> did you get involved, or were you really keeping the journalistic uh, distance?
2: No, I didn't get involved. I think I did tweet something about how I was really wishing I could get involved because um, I mean I had some personal thoughts about Columbus that I wanted to share, but you know I, I did not, and I kind of just filmed. And with, I mean, there was a large group of off-duty cops. I, I, I can't say for sure that all of them were, but unequivocally, some of them were off-duty cops. I mean, they were all chatting with Kat and, Zara, and they, a lot of them were wearing back to blue, thin blue lines. And some of them had said they were off duty cops, but when we asked like where they were with, they would kind of shut up at that point. And they were having a kind of a get together. They had, you know, cigars, they had, you know, Budweiser's, they were having drinks, you know, and some of the, I know fifth ward Alderman candidates of last selection cycle, Will Calloway was down there and um, he was, pretty irate about the fact that they were drinking on, you know, public sidewalk right in front of all these police officers with no consequences um, and so then they started going back and forth and, you know, Will Calloway's a passionate guy and uh, he was yelling at them and they were yelling at him and then at some points there was you know, they were screaming about fighting each other and like, let's step aside from the cameras and go, you know, down the block and figure this out and, but the problem was every time they would walk away, you know, 10, 10 reporters would follow them, you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean, to laugh, but I, I'm just I flashing I back to the scene because it was so classic. Uh, Callaway is uh, in their face, and this one beefy dude I have no idea who he was. He may have been I, off I, duty. Was he in the wife beater, it no, I could not was he, I can't recall if he's where he was like. Come on, let's step out, let's step out. There's like yeah. a, a police rope around, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so Chicago. This is everything wrong with the city of Chicago. Hey, come on, let's go step out. You want? We'll, we'll just take it out here, you know what I mean? That's so Chicago. Oh, well, that's how we settle things in our town. We're all tough, we gotta go fight. You know what I mean? There's nobody can reason. Nobody's going to have a like a debate. You know what I'm saying, Jonathan? No one's going to say, "Well, that's an interesting point." You know, like momentarily reflect on what someone's. Let's go take it outside, huh? So Chicago, Jonathan. Anyway, I, I really enjoy. I think that was you. I was watching your Twitter feed. Uh, you captured that moment, uh, uh, and where there are a lot of uh, protesters at that scene who wanted the statue to come down at that moment or was it, they were, were they outnumbered by the police who wanted it to stay? No, I'd say at first it was more pro pro statue,
2: pro Columbus. And then it started to gather. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of them came from the other action, but I'm sure some people just showed up as they saw it covered on, you know, social media or whatnot. But by the end of the night, I'd say it was more, um, pull the statue down folks, you know, uh, get it down. Um, and, I, they actually stayed more. I think once the, a lot of the pro-Columbus pro folks, once they saw the statue was coming down, like a lot of them
1: left for the evening. And so talk about that when the, when the city crews, the work crews finally came and took the statue down. Just give us people a sense of what was that like. What was, I was that like?
2: In Chicago, especially because I saw a park district truck pull up. And so I'm like, I gotta go check that out. And then I see... I see like a hard hat crew of maybe ten people standing around behind it, having like a, a what I would call from like the Marine Corps, like a safety brief, you know, where like the guy goes over everything and they plan it out. So I start walking up there slowly, and they're talking and talking. And then they all start seeing me at the same time, and all just kind of stop talking, right? And they like look at me, and they're like, "What do you want?"
1: And I'm it's like, so oh. Chicago." I'm
2: like, I'm like oh, "Hey, I'm uh, I'm pressed. I'm just wondering, like, are you guys here to take the statue down?" And they go, "I don't know." <laughs> So I'm like, I'm like wait, what, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, well, probably not. No, get out of here. And
1: I'm like. <laughs> Chicago, man.
2: Very, very much. And I was like, okay, so this thing's probably coming down at this point. <laughs> because then I saw a cherry picker come in. And then we saw, um, what's his name? I can't remember. He's like the big police liaison guy. He's always in a suit. His name But he's always kind of like a great and the police and you know protesters etc i want to say his last glenn brooks maybe i'm trying to remember his name it's escaping me but he was kind of telling us like hey media like this is happening here's where you can stage and so we were all like right there with a clear shot and then the city crews come over and the police and they're like telling us now sorry you guys can't be there anymore it's a safety issue granted we're like 200 meters away from the statue at this point but i, I after seeing it come down i do kind of understand how they didn't want us in the way so they backed us in so they all just in the middle of the street right there on columbus and we're all just standing there and the photographers are pissed you know because they can't get their shot right now especially the broadcast guys with their sticks yeah. and they can't get the good shot so they're all uh, bless the producers who were all like or those cameramen who were all bitching at the you know at the <laughs> police officers and they're like we need a better shot we need a better shot and so eventually just to shut us up uh they moved us and they were accommodating i want to be fully uh, like uh, upfront with that they were very accommodating to us and the police officers and the liaison moved us over to roosevelt and gave us a special spot where if you showed us your press credentials you could be there so we all had the shot for the thing to come down but that's another thing um, when it actually did come down and i don't know how much i captured this in the story i wrote it was, it was Pretty funny because we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, of course. And we're even when we're at that spot, we're waiting and waiting. And like, of course, when everyone's not paying attention for once, mm-hmm. there's a low. We heard this crack, you know. <laughs> and it's just like everyone up and all I hear all the photographers go, "Damn it!" You know, and like just like so upset because like a lot of them missed the shot. <laughs> and they did have the shot are rolling, and they're like, "I got it!" You know, I got the shot. And, and I'm like, this, "This is exactly what happened." But like, I don't think the city crews are ready for it to crack from the base because it was like still wrapped in like whatever wrapping they had around it. it yeah. Was, it was like, I think the wrapping was almost keeping it from like fully detaching. Cause it was still on chains at that point and then slowly once they like got it on they got, they cut the wrapping off or whatever then it starts suspending from midair and like taking apart and everyone was getting their you know their shots in but
1: it's just a weird night overall that is weird i just imagine uh, some producer going um excuse me uh i missed my shot can we do that again, can we again? Yeah. uh just one more time <laughs> Anyway, man, I gotta tell everybody out there go check out uh, the article that Jonathan wrote in Esquire about it. It's really good. Yes, you do have that uh, you do have that bit in there about uh, the, the the cameraman missing their shot and it happening so quickly. And you also talk quite openly. And I give you credit for this. This is new school, new age journalism, which I applaud because I've only been doing it since. <laughs> the the eighties. Uh, but Hey, maybe I'm finally coming into, into a time, but, um, you're out there. You say, Hey man, you know, I, I I was happy to see the statue come down. You didn't beat around the bush and, you know, in duck and dodge. You said it. I was happy to see the statue come down and I'll be honest with you too. I was happy to see the damn statue come down, but talk about that from your perspective, why you were happy to see the statue come down.
2: You know, it's it's it's. I've heard the argument of like it's going to erase history or whatever, but like. Columbus is not in any danger of of coming out of the history books. I mean, like we all know who Columbus is. No one's forgetting who he is. But I think when you look at the history that's finally come out about this person, reading his own diary, you can see he was a freaking monster. And so like, do we have to celebrate him with a 40 foot statue, like in the park of native land, you know, like where native people walk by all the time. I mean, I think I wrote about it too. I mean, the, the Potawatomi massacre was right up the road from there, you know? And I just, To me, there's far too, there's far too few statues of people of color, native people, you know, black Americans, and there's far too many of fascists, raping, genocidal maniacs.
1: Wow, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, And uh, Jonathan Ballou, you're the man. Uh, You did outstanding journalism, in my humble opinion. I'm going to give a shout-out to Colin Boyle. He's been on the show before. Uh, Not like I favor one young journalist over the other. Colin Boyle has done a hell of a job as well. Uh, he gets out there and he's a block club guy, uh, as well. So I gotta go shout out some love for Colin Boyle. Uh, he does good stuff too. Jonathan, why don't you tell folks how they can follow you? Cause, uh, you, you're still going out and covering uh street scenes like this. So give, give all the information you need so people can follow you. I'd say the easiest way is just my Twitter, which is
2: at JCB underscore journo that's j-o-u-r-n-o so it's just at jcb underscore journo and i pretty much post all my work there and it's got links to my bio or email and linkedin and all that good stuff
1: all right and his last name is spelled b-a-l-l-e-w uh jonathan uh, b-a-l-l-e-w jonathan uh thank you so much for taking the time coming on the show it was a blast talking to you and uh, best of luck to you all right yeah anytime ben i'll come on anytime you want to chat all right, man, that's Jonathan Blue. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.
0: Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food